Ipemestra, a beautiful young wife, defies her father to save her husband. In a story told by a pioneer of early opera, Francesco Cavalli. One senses youth and one senses the excitement of a new form. Piecing together Cavalli's score was a bit of an operatic jigsaw puzzle. Because it's the best documented opera of the, the whole 17th century in Italy. But it's well worth the effort. It was one of the most exhilarating and wonderful experiences of my life. In this episode, we're exploring Cavalli's Ipermestra, an Italian Baroque masterpiece that's taken over 350 years to find its way to a UK stage. In fact, Ipermestra was first staged during a hot Florentine summer in 1658 and wasn't seen again until its modern premiere at the Early Music Festival in Utrecht in 2006. Ipermestra loves her husband, Linceo. She's the only one of 50 daughters to disobey their father, King Danao of Argos. He orders all of them to kill their husbands, who are the 50 sons of his twin brother, King Egito. Why? Because he's in fear of his life. There's a prophecy that one of his brother's sons will kill him. The lovers, Ipermestra and Linceo, are tested in the most extreme way. From the very first pages of the score, Cavalli immerses us in a deeply romantic and dramatic world. Conductor William Christie. Well, it starts out actually at the very beginning of the first act. I mean, there are some extraordinary moments of Linceo and uh, Ipermestra, especially in these meltingly beautiful, tragic, pathetic eyes in, in triple time, uh, which, of course, are one of the, the great trademarks of the Cavalli style. Cavalli essentially is the very beginning uh, of a Venetian opera. By you know, he spends twenty-five years writing opera for Venice and um, he sees it from its infancy to uh, a moment in its life when it becomes really the most important sort of musical form in the world. You might say, no Cavalli, no opera. It might sound like an exaggeration, but when Cavalli began creating opera in 17th century Venice, he was nurturing a newborn art form which might have died if not for the works of Cavalli and his mentor, Claudio Monteverdi. The world's first public opera house had just opened in Venice. The possibilities were limitless. There were no conventions then about the placement of arias or speech-like passages, the recitative parts 
as we'd recognise them in later centuries. No rules about what made an opera seria with serious themes or an opera buffa or comic opera. There was just this new way of musically telling stories. And Cavalli was the storyteller. Christine Jeanneret of the University of Copenhagen has spent many years researching Cavalli's work. Opera was born in Florence at the very end of the 16th century at the Medici court. It then emigrated to Rome first and to Venice, where it started to become a very popular art. And from there, it spread all over Italy and all over Europe. Uh, at the time of Ipermestra, so we have Cavalli writing his only opera for the Medici court. The big difference between Cavalli's production or any Venetian production and uh, what happened with Ipermestra at the Medici court is that in Venice, theatre were public. So uh, there were a lot of financial issues at stake. You had to fill the theatre, it had to be popular with the audience. Whereas in uh, Florence, especially in the case of Ipermestra, it was a private, courtly, princely performance. So money was not an issue, even the contrary. The more you spend, the better it was. The great British mezzo, Dame Janet Baker, performed in one of the pioneering 20th century revivals of Cavalli at Glyndebourne. These versions were created by British conductor Raymond Leppard. Until Leppard picked up Cavalli's work, virtually no one was staging the Baroque masters' operas. It was Leppard who first made these little-known works available to a modern audience. Dame Janet sang the role of Diana in Cavalli's La Calisto at Glyndebourne in 1970. Cavalli was a really new thing for me. And to grow into that style, we had to learn it. I had to learn it anyway, because I'd never done it before. I think some of the others had done Cavalli. Uh, there was a freedom about it. It was, had a shape, but there was a freedom because you felt you were able to communicate everything not just the aria pieces, but the whole, the whole character of the piece. There was a relaxation about it and, and also a sense of, of, of the words being so important. And the words always have been very important to me. The Glyndebourne scene was like a family. All of a sudden, you were in a, a, a relaxed place in the country. You were there for all the time. And this sense of getting to know uh, your fellow members of the cast, uh, you're not working with strangers on a stage for one or two performances. You're there right from the beginning, building something together, building something unusual. It's indescribable. It's in, in, the whole thing was very, very special and uh, unique as far as I'm concerned. Word of these Cavalli stagings at Glyndebourne reached a young William Christie who was studying on the east coast of the USA. He was hooked. 
I was in Yale as a young student uh, when Ormindo was put on, and I remember hearing and reading about the uh, the Glyndebourne production. Uh, in 1970, it had already moved to France, and uh, I think Callisto was even more of a success. And certainly, I can remember the French papers sort of you know crowing about uh, this uh, this uh, wonderful new music and then by this uh, newly sort of rediscovered composer Cavalli. Groundbreaking Cavalli stagings, first of Lormindo in 1967 and then La Calisto in 1970, weren't just important to the history of opera. They're integral to the history of Glyndebourne too and to its values as an opera house. Corey Ellison is Glyndebourne's dramaturg. Raymond Lepard, who is, of course, this very distinguished British conductor, a very versatile was a pioneer in this. He brought the idea of doing Cavalli to Glyndebourne, and he thought these works, these these essentially chamber-textured works with ensemble casts would be perfect for Glyndebourne, and it was time for these works to be unearthed and seen in the 20th century. And so he prepared his own editions of them for performance because the state in which most of Cavalli's works existed was very uh, rudimentary. There were manuscripts in the Biblioteca Marciana in Venice, which were in um, various states of uh, incompleteness in terms of their realization. So uh, Raymond Lepard made performing editions of them. Now, even at the time, these were quite controversial. Lepard's editions of Baroque operas tended to be harmonized in very, very post-romantic ways, if you will. We're many decades away from this, and there's been huge advances in musical scholarship, particularly in Baroque music, during that intervening period of time, the 60s and 70s, when Lepard was working on this. But yet we have to give Lepard huge credit for bringing these works back into the circulation not only of Glyndebourne but really of the whole music world. Raymond Leppard's adaptations were aimed at enticing a 20th century audience to dip their toes into an unfamiliar style and then dive into early opera. And it worked. In the 50 years since his versions were first staged, Scholars and performers have been picking over what remains of Cavalli's scores and trying to achieve something that's as close to Cavalli's intentions as it can be. Christine Jeanneret was deeply involved in piecing back together the original Cavalli manuscripts for Ipermestra. So Ipermestra is an absolutely fascinating case because it's the best documented opera of the, the whole 17th century in Italy. We have uh, three different versions of Moniglia's libretto, an early manuscript version from 1654, a printed version from 1658, so the time of the premiere. Then we have Cavalli's score from 1654, which is the first version. And that's kind of interesting because it doesn't match with the printed libretto. It matches with the manuscript libretto. Because what happened in this opera is that it was commissioned by the Cardinal Giovancarlo de Medici in 1654. So four years before it was actually staged. 
He commissioned it as a birthday present for his sister-in-law, the Grand Duchess Vittoria della Rovere. Ipermestra was shelved for another three years, but the cardinal really wanted to stage it. So when suddenly the Spanish king had a son, the baby was called Felipe Prospero, uh, he thought of giving it for a totally new occasion. So the prologue of 1654 uh, contains a lot of reference to the Grand Duchess, Victoria, But in Moniglia's libretto, the printed one from 1658, they are carefully cancelled and they are substituted by Filippo. So there has been an intensive recycling of the work between 1954 and the premiere in 1958. And Cavalli was contacted again by the cardinal to rewrite the prologue and the ending. But we lost this part. In a Cavalli opera, a small orchestra means the singer's voice is constantly in the spotlight. William Christie again. When you take a look at these scores, the first thing that you're struck by the the extraordinary economy of, of means, that's to say entire pages consist only of two lines, a line for the voice and another line for the orchestra sometimes just two instruments playing the treble instruments, and an assortment of instruments that was used for the continual band. That's to say, an improvising orchestra that would include harpsichords, lutes and theorbos, in other words, lutes of all different sizes, a couple of bowed instruments, bass instruments, cello, violone, contrabass, uh, and some, uh, perhaps a few other instruments like a harp or a lirone. His sole real interest, uh, and he would, we have to remember he's a former singer, was the solo singer on stage. Um, everything else is subservient. For Janet Baker, this kind of experience is a rare treat. You weren't fighting a big sound. You were able to speak to your colleagues and, and tell the story. And then every so often, and this was the most thrilling thing that I, I remember so well, every so often Cavalli changed that shape and it was a bit like singing a big Puccini aria. Not like that, but the feeling of an aria. Something different was happening. was this marvellous feeling of being uplifted, being taken somewhere else. All of a sudden, it was one of the most exhilarating and wonderful experiences of my life, it really was. 
you know, one senses youth and one senses the excitement of a new form. Uh, and of course, a lot of the excitement comes out of the fact that this is musical drama. And there are few moments, I think, when there's this marvelous sort of equilibrium, this, this kind of sharing of words and music, which, in a sense, should be a very important aspect of music drama. Um, we, you can talk about the beginnings in, in Italy, as you can talk about the wonderful moment in France uh, with the tragedie lyrique at the end of the 17th century. And then you can talk perhaps a bit about sort of Verissimo and, uh, and why not Puccini at the end and beginning part of the 20th century. In essence, Ipamestra is a simple story. Ipamestra will not sacrifice her husband, Linceo, and the two endure the ordeals thrown at them. Their love is finally rewarded with a happy ending. Despite Ipamestra being an unfamiliar work which very few people will have seen performed in our lifetime and which wasn't seen before 2017 in the UK, for Janet Baker, Cavalli is a dramatic genius whose work is quite at home in modern opera houses. I think one always has to remember that whatever time you live in, human beings are the same. The highs and the lows, in other words, are exactly the same. We don't change as human beings. Our inner feelings are exactly the same. Uh, and the, pa the passion with which you approach a character and approach a situation are totally familiar. You can't suddenly think, well, because it's 300 years ago, they didn't feel the same. Of course they did. The music you've been listening to in this podcast is courtesy of the Netherlands radio station NPO Radio 4. Mike Fentros conducted La Sfera Armoniosa Orchestra. The role of Ipemestra was performed by Elena Monti with Emanuela Gali as Linceo. Thanks for listening to this Glyndebourne podcast with me, Katie Derham. This podcast is part of a growing library of episodes that delve into the music and magic of some of the greatest operas ever written. Explore the archive to learn more about this incredible art form and the remarkable artists who've played a part in shaping it.